0: very different culture. I often joke with people and say, you know, if you can get an exact opposite from a American mind, a mindset or especially Southern American mindset, it is uh, Vietnam. It's a very different kind of place, but we're honored to be there. Let me uh, introduce my wife to you. This is my wife, Sarah. We're about to celebrate 11 years of marriage, and she is actually, she's actually the adventurous one, you know. She's uh, she's she, before I married her. She went skydiving, hot air ballooning. Oh, wow. I mean, she does all kinds of crazy stuff, and she's kind of dragged me along with her. So, <laughs> uh, she's a crazy Indian. I mean, Native American. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> yeah. So my wife's Navajo, and uh, when I, when I first when we first met, I always wore a cowboy hat and boots. I don't have it on this morning, but I was raised over here in Brady, Texas. So, I mean, if you were raised in Brady, you gotta wear cowboy boots. And I was raised that way. So when we got married, you know, a cowboy and an Indian, we were like, wow. You know, our kids are going to have a real identity crisis, you know. so. um, But anyway, we do have four kids. Uh, The other three are back there. I'm sure you've heard them and seen them. We have an 8-year-old, a 6-year-old, a 4-year-old, and a 2-year-old. This one here was born in Hanoi. Uh, not only born in Hanoi, the communist capital of Vietnam, but he was also born on Ho Chi Minh's birthday, which was the communist revolutionary back in the 1940s. And so uh, all the Vietnamese people think that we are lucky or he's lucky for some reason because he was born on, on Ho Chi Minh's birthday. But um, even though he's, um, he was made in Vietnam, he was made with American parts, so he's an American boy. Yeah. All right. <clears throat> Yeah, you guys can get Okay, you say bye-bye, huh? Say bye-bye, Casey. Yeah, all right. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, so it's a, it's an honor to be here, to be able to hang out with you guys, share a little bit. Um, I want to tell you just a little bit of, of our story as I was listening to Pastor Jim and kind of just hearing how God has worked in his heart and what God is doing here and kind of the, just kind of um, stripping things down to the raw dimension of Christianity and Whenever I was about 16 years old, God began to stir my heart for the lost. I didn't really know what that meant. I just knew that God was breaking my heart for people who did not know Jesus. I was a very shy and backward guy then. I had no intentions of ever being in ministry. My dad is a pastor And my little brother was at that time. Everyone already knew he was going to be a pastor. He had made that very, very, very clear. But I just, I wasn't cut out that way, you know. I was like, no, I'll, I'll work. At that time, I was when I was 16. I was working on a ranch. I loved working cows, driving tractors, and I thought, you know what? That's what I'll do. I'll work and um, support the ministry. I love the Lord, but God began to break my heart and. Then when I was 19, just, this went on for about three years. When I was 19, I felt like God said, Are you going to be obedient to me and preach the word to people who have not heard the gospel? And so, I, you know, I struggled with it. I thought, No, Lord, not me. There's no way. I, you've got the wrong guy. You've got the wrong guy. I can't do that. I'm, I'm not that kind of person. I'm just kind of a plain uh, country boy. I don't really know if I can do that. But God continued to deal with my heart. I answered the call of God to, to preach the gospel I knew at that time that God wanted me in some way to work with, with missions, to preach to people who did not know Him, share the gospel. But I didn't have any idea that it would be overseas, or at least not in Vietnam. I had never intended to go to Vietnam uh, I spent a few years youth pastoring for my dad, and then when I was 23, I was working building oil field equipment as a welder and mobile crane operator. God said, I want you to quit your job and go prepare for a life of ministry overseas. So I went to Bible school, and um, I didn't really fit at Bible school, at least when I first went. I thought, man, I, you know, I've already been in the work world. I'm a lot older than all these guys at seminary. I don't know if I can do this, but God uh, God had a plan as I prepared, God continued to open up open up doors for us and confirm to us. Sarah and I got married, and um, I thought, you know what, it's time for us to go. We're going to go to Latin America. I had spent some time in El Salvador and Nicaragua, and a little bit in Mexico and in Puerto Rico, and I thought, you know what, we're going to go to Latin America. So we graduated. Uh, Sarah's got a degree in education. I have a degree in business and in uh, Bible, church ministry, theology stuff, and um, I... Um, said, okay, it's time for us to go. It's time for us to go. And God said, no, it's not time to go yet. So we spent some time. Then God opened up an opportunity for us in Vietnam, or we heard about a need in Vietnam. And I thought, you know what? Vietnam, I don't know about, I haven't really thought about Vietnam. All I know is the war era stories from Vietnam. And um, the need was presented to us kind of as a prayer request that God would call some workers to go there to Vietnam. And so I told Sarah, I said, you know what, we need to pray that God will call missionaries to Vietnam. Now, I I had no intentions of us praying about us going to Vietnam. I was just praying that God, because there was a need there and we needed people there. So I said, Sarah, let's pray. We prayed for a few weeks. And then Sarah came to me and she said, Jason, what, you know, what about we've been praying for God to lead us, and now we've got a prayer request for people. We need missionaries in Vietnam. What about us going to Vietnam? And I said, you know, at that time, you know, I was a real, you know, hoorah missionary guy, and I was the spiritual leader of our family, and I looked at her, and I said, no, we're not going to Vietnam. We're not going to Vietnam. We're going to go to Latin America. God can call other people to Vietnam. We're just praying for God to call people. Well, I turned around and walked away from my wife there. We were in the living room of our, where we were living, and I walked away from her. I got about two steps away from her, and the Lord just gripped my heart and said, yes, you are going to Vietnam, and if you'll listen to me and uh, be obedient to me, I will lead you and direct you and guide you, and it just really began to kind of unfold for us. I was stunned. I was standing there in the middle of our living room, and I, I felt like I did when I heard about 9-11 that the Twin Towers had been bombed. That's the way I felt that my world just stood still, and I thought, we're going to Vietnam. And I'm like, God, I don't know if I want to take my wife. And at that time, Cheyenne, our, our oldest, was only about a year old. And I thought, God, I don't know if I want to go to Vietnam with my young family. I don't, you know, third world communist country. But God continued to deal with us. And so uh, that was in 2008, 2010, we, we arrived in Saigon or Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam. And it, is, it has been an honor for us, the joy of our lives, really, to be able to serve the Lord In Vietnam, and I really we've been there six years, but I feel like we're just getting started with what God wants us to do. It is a crazy place to live. There's a lot of things, and I want to tell you some stories in a little bit. But I wanted you to know, like, how did we end up there? Was it something that we just wanted to do? No, it was really a journey for us. Of God saying, "No, it may not look like anything that you thought it would look like. Your service for me may not look like anything that you ever dreamed of, but it's my plan, and I've got a purpose for what I want you to do." So, um, it's it's been a It's a crazy place to live, especially with a young family, but God has been good to us. Uh, I have a. We, we started a church there in Saigon, in the southern part of Vietnam. I also taught, helping train pastors and church planters there. And in Vietnam, uh, when you know you, you feel like maybe this is a little unusual to meet in a place like this, in Vietnam there are almost no church buildings. So uh, it's very, very, um, very similar to what you have here in some regard. That whenever we meet for church, it's most of the time in a house or some kind of other shop or building. And they just use it to meet on Sunday because the government does not allow, for the most part, open practice of uh, Christianity. So uh, in the city that we live in now, there's only there's about 7 million people in the city, and there's only one Protestant church in, in a town of 7 million. You've got a lot more than that here in uh, Marble Falls, I'm sure, it's a city of, uh, what is it, 10,000? about 20, yeah, so, but in a city of 7 million, there's only one Protestant church, so, uh, but there are there are churches that meet people, believers that are meeting throughout the city, and we are help we were in Saigon in the southern part of Vietnam, we were training people there. If you know much about the war, you know that America partnered with the, the South during that time, and so in the South, it's a little more friendly to foreigners, a little more open to Western people. But while we were there, we felt like God was saying, I want you to go north. And I told Sarah, I think we're supposed to go to Hanoi, which is the communist capital. I told our organization, hey, we feel like we're supposed to go to Hanoi. And they said, you can't live in Hanoi. It's too harsh. Uh, Our organization hasn't had people up there in years and years. You can't go. And so I told Sarah, well, I don't know, but we're going to keep praying because I think that's where we're supposed to go. And when we came home last time in 2012, um, we were praying, saying, God, if this is your heart, you've got to do it, because we're being told, no, 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 it's too hard, it's too harsh, can't take a family there, you'll get kicked out, the government will follow you, they'll, whatever. So I just said, God, if this is you, you've got to do it. And while we were home last last time, 2012, um, a door opened up for us to go to Hanoi. God gave us a, a relationship with a company there, an education company, that said, if you'll come, uh, we'll let you teach for us uh, five hours a week, and we'll give you a visa to let you be here legally. we were not going to pay you, but we'll give you a visa to be here legally, and uh, then you can do what you want to in your free time. So that's, uh, that's how we ended up in Hanoi in the far northern part near China, in the northern part of, of uh, Vietnam, and that's where we've been the last three years. And I w- I've got a short video here that will highlight some of our work there This is not all the way to the front of the video. It may need to go back just a little bit. Yeah. Um, So uh, it'll highlight some of our work there, and then I'll come back and talk a little bit more. Go ahead, guys. So a pastor said, Well, that was going. Pastor Jim said, Well, if someone walks in, just keep going, or if phone rings, keep going. He was just saying that as a just a kind of a heads up for me here. But I'll tell you in Vietnam, oftentimes when I'm preaching, they say, if someone walks in, sit down and be quiet or hide. <laughs> so it's a little different. Um, f- several times I've been preaching and they've told me to be quiet. Just not too long ago I was preaching was way up in the mountains. There was a we were doing a training thing for some of our tribal people and they said, you go, you know, I'm preaching along there. And then the pastor stands up and he says, be quiet. And I'm like, well, is it that bad, you know? And they said, um, he said, somebody's walking by, somebody's walking by. So I, I stopped. And uh, they said, just stand there, wait, wait, wait. Okay, he's gone. Okay, go ahead and start. So we do have that. And so when somebody walks in, uh, it is a little different. Another time, just recently, I was up near the Lao border. That first time was up on the Chinese border. The other, this this next instance was up on the Lao, uh, Vietnam, Laos border. And uh, I was with the pastor. We were going along, and he said, uh, we were in a vehicle. And he said, uh, sit in the back. And uh, so I'm sitting in the back, and we're going along there. And then he says, I said, is it okay for me to be here in this area? And he said, yeah, yeah, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. And um, we got a little closer to the village, and he said, lay down. And I said, okay. So you know, I laid down in the back seat. And I said, I thought you said this would be fine. And he threw his coat back there to me. He said, put this coat over your head. And I said, Pastor, I thought you said this area was okay for me to be in. He said, if you'll lay down and put that coat over you, everything will be okay. So, uh, you know, if somebody walks in and I hide, don't don't think anything about it um, tonight or this morning. So, it is a different place to minister, but God has opened up doors for us. He's given us um, a legal reason to be there. I always carry my business card with me uh, when I'm there. That says that I'm a teacher and that I'm also I'm actually the director of one of the parts of the of the company. It gives me some some uh, cover there to move around, but it's really the Lord who has opened up the opportunities for us to take the gospel to this place. That is uh, in Vietnam. There's ninety million over ninety million people. Uh, A very generous figure is that 5% of the population are Christians. It's probably less than 2% of true born-again followers of Jesus. And so it's a very dark place. And the gospel only came to Vietnam about 100 years ago, 1911. The first Protestant missionaries came there. So Christianity is very new. And whenever you talk about taking the gospel of Jesus there to a place that has been so long, if you think back from the beginning of time, until 1911, from the t- that's how long the enemy has really had full reign there. God has never been lifted up among the Vietnamese people, and so it's a it's a dark place in a lot of ways. It's uh, not only is there opposition from the government, but there's also just this spiritual darkness and opposition that is not welcoming of the preaching of the gospel. But, uh, but God, is, God is good, and the, the Bible says that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It belongs to Him, not any government or any person, and if the Lord says go, then He can make a way, right? And so uh, we're we are happy to be there. Uh, if you'll send Pastor Jim out there to hang out with me sometime, which I think you guys should do that. I think he can make it there. I mean, I know he's a little soft, but I mean, I think he could probably make it. No, I'm just joking. Um, Uh, You know, I'll take him out to eat, and, you know, there in Vietnam, you know, we love to, we have all kinds, you know, you can just make, really pick whatever you want. We have dog meat, cat meat, we have rats, Uh, we eat rat meat, uh, uh, horse, water buffalo, snail, and banana soup. So, I mean, you just take your pick if you come out. (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of things about Vietnam that are are very uh, interesting and different about the way things are done, but uh, we are happy what God is doing, and, Protecting us, keeping us, and uh, opening up doors for us. Uh, one of our primary focuses is training up Vietnamese people that God has called, working with them, and then sending them out. We can do some evangelism personally, but they can do much more than we can. And so, it's um, God has given us a heart for uh, training and doing that kind of work. And so, we do a lot, spend a lot of time doing. Uh, Pastoral evangelistic training and then sending Vietnamese people out to plant churches. And when we say plant churches, it's uh, to evangelize and begin to disciple people and preach the Word of God. It's not buildings like this. Uh, We did have built a couple of buildings, a few buildings, which has been good, but they're all part of a house as well. Uh, They're connected to a local residence. They're not registered church buildings, but they're used for churches, and we can use those to do the training in. And uh, as we go back, we'll go back as soon as we get our funds together. We'll go back for four more years uh, to northern Vietnam. But uh, when we go back, we'll be starting what we're calling a junior Bible school. It'll be kind of a Bear uh, kind of a, a nuts and bolts training program to equip these Vietnamese people. It'll be the first of its kind with uh, our organization in northern Vietnam. And I would ask you guys here at the Mosaic Church to pray with us that God would provide what we need, and that we'll be able to effectively uh, be, be able to effectively invest in these young Vietnamese believers and people that God has called so that they can go out and take the message of Jesus and that he wants to save uh, the, these people they'll be able to take that message of the gospel to places where it's never been preached. never since Jesus said go, many of these places have never heard what about, about Jesus. They don't know there is a Jesus. They don't know that there is a Bible. they don't know that there is a God who loves them. They mostly live in fear. Uh, They're very superstitious. Most of them worship their dead ancestors and Buddha, and then some plethora of of trees and the stars and moon, very animistic, especially in the rural areas. But uh, we're training up people to take the gospel into those areas, and they're committed. These people are committed. One of the people that we trained in the Bible school, his name is is, is Jacob. He goes by Jacob. Uh, And uh, not too long ago, he called me and he said, Jason, I'm, I'm in Hanoi. And I said, well, you're supposed. To, I thought you were up in the mountains near China uh, doing evangelism. And that's where he had been living since he graduated from the Bible school. And he said, well, they're after me. They're, they're following me. I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, the police have been following me and I've only been able to travel at night for the last several weeks because they're, they're trying to arrest me, they're trying to catch me. And so I've been traveling at night, staying in a house, teaching, discipling during the day, and then at night I travel again, but they're just too close. And if I stay any longer, uh, they're going to get me. So I had to get on the train and come to Hanoi. I said, well, Jacob, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? You know, you're going to go back? And he said, Jason, there's too much work. God has called me up there, and that's where I'm going. After everything calms down for a week or so, I'm going back to continue what God has called me to do. And it is, it is those kind of people, like with that dedication and commitment to the call of God, to the proclamation of the gospel that God has called us to help train and um, invest in and then release them, and when you when you give to missions, and when Pastor Jim talks about missions or taking the gospel to another country, that's what we're doing. That is the that is the clarion call of God to His people. Is that not only do we receive the gospel, but that we take it to people who have not heard it. And so we are honored to be your representatives there. Pastor Jim has uh, been a, a supporter of ours in this church. Uh, he is. Uh, committed that this church is going to continue walking alongside us in the journey of taking the gospel to people who have not heard it and I want you to know that it is that it is an honor for us to represent you there and we deeply appreciate your commitment to taking Jesus not some form of religion but taking Jesus and the message of the gospel to people who have never heard it uh, we'll be we'll be hanging around after the service here to talk uh, if you have questions and those kind of things. Uh, we have some prayer cards. I'm going to show you. Like, I want each of you, if you can, to get one of these prayer cards. Not just because I think I have a beautiful family, but I want you to remember to pray for us. Uh, it is, it is something that we covet. The as Pastor Jim said, from the traffic to the government or whatever. It, there's a plenty of reasons why we need your prayer and God to sustain us as we work there in Vietnam. I do, I do want to share with you from the Word of God this morning. Uh, From Luke chapter 15, from Luke chapter 15, as I prepared for this morning, thought about this morning, I I don't know, I didn't know a lot of your history, but uh, I felt like this is where God wanted me to go. This is what He wanted me to, to say, and then as I was talking to Pastor Jim this morning, I thought, you know what, I think this is a very fitting message. I believe it's something that the Lord has led me to, to share with you this morning regarding uh, His heart, and uh, I hope that God will speak to all of us. I believe that the Word of God is quick and powerful. It's alive. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the Word of God is alive? It has the ability to come in. The Bible tells us it's quick and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing between soul and spirit and the joints and the morrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. When God's Word goes forth, it does something in us that uh, any other book cannot do, any other teaching, any other word, information. It is the living Word of God. So I want us to read in Luke chapter 15, we're going to read uh, verse uh, verse 1 down through verse 7. It reads like this, Luke chapter 15, verse 1, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, speaking about Jesus, drawing near to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And then he comes home and he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found, 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 found. My Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's making his way from Galilee up in the north to Jerusalem down in the south, and he's teaching along the way. And in chapter 14, Jesus has told Jesus, those who are following him. He had collected quite a large gathering of people who were listening to him, very interested in his teaching. As as Jesus makes his way, as he makes his way down, he's telling them a story about a man who had prepared a feast And he said, I want you to come to the feast. And one by one, people begin to make excuses. Oh, I've got this happening. I've married someone. I've bought a piece of property. I've I've got to go check out something. Just all of these excuses of why they couldn't come to the feast. Jesus said, he uses this as an illustration to say that oftentimes those who we think should be a part or should be involved often find reasons why they cannot be involved in what God is asking them to do. And then in chapter, uh, chapter 14, a little further down, verse 26 through 28, Jesus says, you know what, if you're going to, if you're going to follow me, you can't, you can't follow me with excuses, but it's going to cost you to follow me. And so Jesus goes through this really hard saying, about the cost of discipleship. In most Bibles, that section of the Scripture is called the cost of discipleship, where He says, if anyone comes after me and does not hate or, or put behind him his own father and mother and wife and children uh, and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So Jesus is saying these really hard things about what it means to follow Him, what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. And so here's here's Jesus, this one who's become this very popular teacher. He's saying, you want to know what it's really like? You can't be like these jokers who just live by excuses. You're going, It's going to take something to really be a part of the kingdom of God. So He's been saying this. And then the end of chapter 14, He said, well, salt is good. And I see salt, uh, salt and pepper shakers here. He said, salt is good. But if it loses its effectiveness, it's no good at all. And so Jesus is really countering those religious kind of people who thought that they should be included because of their religiosity, not because of their obedience. Then he comes to verse fifteen, and these same religious people, and you you know you know how they are. They're everywhere. Some people are religious Christians, and then there's some people, like in Vietnam, they're religious Buddhists or they're religious uh, with their own kind of ancestral worship. They are very. Uh, self-righteous, they're very indignant of what they, who they are and how they have earned their right with whatever God they want to serve. In America, for most people, uh, most religious people think that they're better or that they're more godly because of certain kinds of things that they do. Well, in Jesus' day, there was some of those same kind of people. These same kind of people, the tax, uh, the, 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 the Pharisees and scribes they got really upset because Jesus was hanging out with people who did not uh, look like them, who did not practice all of their religious games that they played, who didn't go along with all of their little uh, legalistic ideas of what it took to be right with God. And so, when Jesus began to hang out with these kind of people, they were very upset about it. And you know, in Vietnam, oftentimes there are, there are people who are they're 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 pretty rough. Most of the people there—they're—they're—they're they're, they're nice, they're kind, they're hospitable. But in terms of their walk with their spirituality, their way of life, they're rough people. Probably a lot like these tax collectors and sinners. As I said earlier, in Vietnam, there's about 90 million people, and maybe, maybe five million at the most. Um, probably not even uh, that much. Five million are true born again believers. Most of them, they worship they worship idols. Most of them drink heavily because they're afraid all of the time. They live in fear. Uh, they often worship um, their ancestors, and they do things that will get them into a trance or help them to kind of forget things. They work themselves into some kind of spiritual ecstasy. So they were a lot like these tax collectors and sinners, So I'm sure if Jesus was there, that's the kind of people he would have been hanging out with. And these religious people would not have liked Jesus being in Vietnam either. And, you know, for for my family and I, sometimes uh, even among good church believers, we have been told, I don't know why you're going there. I hope every last one of those Vietnamese people die. I hope that whole side of the whole side of that Southeast Asia slides off into the ocean and they all die because at one time they lifted a they lifted a, a sword against my country. There's all kinds of feelings that people have about people who do not look like us, who do not have the same perspective of us. But when God calls us and he puts the heart of God in us for reaching people who are made in the image of God, we we if we go we we have to decide, are we going to be religious like these guys or are we going to be obedient like Jesus is teaching? Are we going to allow the the God of the universe to flow through us and the gospel to flow through us to the tax collectors and sinners? Or are we going to be religious and say no, they're going to have to come, they're going to have to be like me in order to be right with God so Jesus goes on and he says this in verse three trying to highlight to them the importance of what it's going to take to follow him they're going to have to get rid of their previous ideas they're going to have to put down some of these ideas he's already tried to tell them that the end of chapter 14 but now again he wants them to know why he's hanging out with tax collectors and sinners and he said, "Which one of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country? Go after the one until he finds it." Jesus tells this parable of a lost sheep. And he said, "I want to highlight to you the priority of the lost, And that's what I want to talk to you about just for a few moments this morning, is about God's priority for the lost. As I said, oftentimes in American Christianity, we kind of become more religious than we like to acknowledge or admit to. And oftentimes our priority can easily, for, for me included, even as a missionary, as a missionary who's quit my job, sold all of my stuff, and moved my family to a third world country, sometimes... It is easier for me to be concerned about myself or about my own comfort and ease than about the priority of God. But here Jesus says to the Pharisees and those who are upset with him, he said, I want you to understand something, that it is, it is the lost, those who do not know me, that are my priority. What does it mean? What does it mean if there is something that is a priority in our life? What does it mean to us if something is, is a a high priority it means that it's something that's very important to us and that we are willing to do whatever it takes to keep that as a number one objective in our lives for jesus he said i want you to know he wanted the church if you will the those people there who were listening to him he said i want you to know that it is the lost it is those who have who are relationally separated from me that take priority with me and the kingdom of god and i believe this morning that god by his spirit wants to remind us individually of that this morning that it is the lost those who are relationally separated from god that are the highest priority with our god you know back in genesis chapter 3 god had created man in his own image God had created man to bear his image and in in his likeness. But because of disobedience, Adam and Eve decided to disobey against God, and because of disobedience, sin came into the world and separated man from God so that man could not have a relationship with God. So man became spiritually lost or spiritually separated from God. God, from that point on, began to unfold His plan to redeem lost humanity, lost humankind, and to bring us back into relationship with Him. So from Genesis chapter three all the way through the Old Testament, it is a story of God unveiling his plan to pay the price for mankind, that part of his creation, the crown of his creation that he made in his own image to come back into relationship with him. And this morning I do want to remind you of that you two, you two are created in the image of God, and God has a plan for you. And he loves you. He loves he loves you very much this morning. But here, Jesus said, from that time until now, the priority of God has been lost humanity. And this morning, I believe that God would remind us that He desires for us as the church, for us as born-again believers to remember the priority of God, to remember it is those who are relationally separated from God that He loves the most. Does that mean that He doesn't love us? No, but if we read this story, we are, we are the 99, if you want to say that. We are the 99 who are safe in the fold. We are inside, we are inside of the, the realm of safety because we have believed. And God said, now that you're here, yes, I love you and I want you to stay here. But there are those out there who do not yet know me and they really take priority in my focus. When we talk about missions and we talk about the heart of God, I believe that God would have us take our eyes off of ourselves and say, what is the priority of God? If God is our Lord, if God is the boss of our life, if He is the King of the kingdom, then what is important to Him? Jesus said here, He said, I want you to know, it's the lost. It's the lost. If you listen much to kind of the popular American idea of Christianity, you'll probably probably come away with this idea that God's primary concern is about my own ease and comfort and prosperity. That, That is kind of the American style of Christianity. We've kind of turned it in on ourselves and made it about me being better and me being bigger and me, me, me. But this morning I believe God would say yes I love you and I want to bless you and I want to give you life and that more abundantly but I love the lost. I love the lost. It is a priority with God. As we look further in this story that Jesus is telling not only is not only is the lost a priority but he tells another story to highlight further what it means To keep the lost, those who are relationally separated from God, a priority. In verse 8, he tells another story. He says, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus talks about the lost and reaching the lost with the message of the gospel, letting them know that Jesus loves them. He tells this other story about a lady who lost part part of her wealth. She lost something that was important to her. There's three things here that I find very interesting that highlight to us what happens whenever something is a priority to us, and one is that there is, there is significant diligence in looking for that which is lost. He says, in verse eight, the end of verse eight, she lights a lamp, sweeps the house, and seeks diligently until she finds it. I believe that as we think about, as we think about the lost, Maybe that's one person that you know, maybe it's your family member or a friend or someone that, that you interact with on a regular basis, or maybe it's one person for us on the other side of the world out in the countryside in northern Vietnam. But whatever it is, that, that is important to God. And as I think about this, I think about one young girl. Her name is Thung we had met her there at the education company. She was in our first class of, of um, students. It was university students and staff from the company that we work with, Vietnamese staff, who wanted to learn English. And so there was some people there. Uh, we taught when we first got to Hanoi. She was one of those students, so we began to build a relationship with Thung. And as we built a relationship with her, we invited the whole class over to Um, to our house for Christmas, and whenever you're in a classroom setting there, you can build relationships, but you can't speak uh, openly in in that kind of professional setting about the gospel, but you can invite them to your house, and you can say anything you want to there. So we brought them to the house. We had a Christmas party with those students. And then at the end, I said, I want to tell you what, historically, I want to tell you the, the history of what Christmas is all about. And so as I said that, this particular girl said, well, I've got to go. And she had this just almost panic, like, I know. And I, it's, it's a spiritual battle that's happening when that happens. There's, this, there's spiritual warfare that's going on. And as soon as I said, I want to tell you about the, the Christmas story, she said, "I gotta go." And she got this girl that she had brought with her, and she tried to get out the door. And I said, "Pung, it'd be very uh, important. It's very important to Sarah and I, and it would be very respectful to us if you just stay for five more minutes and listen to this story." So she sat down and she sat there, kind of like this. Just, oh, I mean, this this girl's probably close to thirty years old. She just sat there, just like she was all clammed up this way. Listen to the story. Nothing happened. About two months later, I was asked to preach at a little church, house church, um, and one of the staff from our, from our uh, English company there, she's also a Christian, was going to interpret for me that morning. That was before I started preaching in Vietnamese, and she said, uh, if, if you can, you know, we want you to come and preach at our little house church, and we're going to invite Tung to come. So they invited Tung to come, and I was surprised she came that morning. And I preached about the love of God. And that morning after I preached about the love of God, she came up and she knelt down on the concrete in the front of where I was preaching. And she got right with, she prayed and she said, God, I don't know what it means, but I want to, something is happening in my heart. And that morning, she got saved and whether it's whether it's one person like her and later she told me her story that her family had pushed her out her dad didn't care anything about her she always wanted to kill herself she didn't think anything of herself she didn't think that she would ever have any future that no one loved her no one cared for her whether it's someone like that that you would never know or someone who's the closest to you here we understand that this is those kind of people are a priority to god because they're made in his image amen Here Jesus said, those kind of people, it takes diligence to find them. And if there is a priority, if if those kind of people are a priority to us, we say, you know what, it doesn't matter what it takes. I'm willing to diligently seek them out. If something is a priority, not only do we work with diligence, but we also are willing to use our time and resources. I see here, whenever we look at this parable, Jesus says the woman, she took her lamp and she lit it and she used her energy and her time to look and find that thing that was important to her. I pray this morning that God would renew in all of us, renew in us a sense of burden, a sense of passion, a sense of value for those who are lost, those who do not know God. And that we would say, God... I am willing to allow this to become a priority in my life, not just on Sunday mornings and not just for missionaries that go to the other side of the world, but in my life, God, I am willing to be diligent in looking for the lost. And I am willing to use my time and resources. I am willing to use, God, whatever that you would put in my hand to look for that which you have said is a priority with you. I believe this morning that God is saying, what, what is a priority in your life? What is a priority in my life? Is it the same thing that is a priority with God or have we allowed other things to become a priority? I believe this morning God is speaking to us and He's saying, are you willing to allow it to be a priority? And if so, if it's a priority, are you willing to use your time and resources? Are you willing to burn the oil in your lamp? Are you willing to use what you have for the sake of that which is important to Jesus? Jesus uses one more illustration, and that is the story of the prodigal son as he talks about these, as he talks about the lost. He talks about the sheep, he talks about the coin, and then he talks about this prodigal son, this individual who decided to walk away from God, to get away, and to... and to. Um, to leave and to go away from, uh, from his father. And he talks about how that this, this individual, this son, this prodigal son, left and wasted his life, wasted that which was there. And then he, came, then he decides after all of his money's gone and, and things are not going so well that he'll go back to his father. And he comes back to his father, and the father is open-armed, or open-armed and willing and ready to receive him back. And here I, I, I am reminded again, we are reminded again of God's love for the lost. He says it doesn't matter how bad they are. It doesn't matter what kind of decisions they make. It doesn't matter what the rest of the people around think about them. If they will come back to me, I will love them and I will receive them. And I want you to know this morning that is our Heavenly Father. He loves people regardless of their history, regardless of what they've done, regardless of how bad they stink, like this prodigal son who had been feeding pigs, which was a big no-no in the Jewish culture. He said it doesn't matter what they've been doing. The father is open-armed highlights again to us God's priority for the lost. He said, it's not about what popular culture or the, re- the rest of the religious people think about those people. If they will come to me, I will forgive them. I will receive them to myself. And this morning, I believe God wants to remind us of that. But unfortunately, 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 we often are tempted in our own humanity to take on the personality or the perspective of the older brother, which Jesus here is very clearly portraying as those religious folks who were not excited about Jesus hanging out with the tax collectors and sinners. And this older brother, you know, his brother has been gone, and now he's come home, and he's seen the whole thing unfold, and he sees how excited the father is, and this older brother, he's not going to have it. He's more concerned about himself, and he goes to his dad, and he says, Dad, what's up with all this? I've been here with you all this time, and and, and now you're welcoming this son who's been out there wasting his life, wasting all of his stuff, and you should be doing that for me. I've been here. Jesus uses this illustration to highlight the difference between the priority of the Father and the perspective of those who are turned in on themselves, which here was these religious people. This morning, I pray that God would say to us and would remind us, would challenge us that regardless of where people have been or the way they look or what country they're a part of, That it is his priority and that it would be his agenda that would inform our perspective of the lost. Not Fox or CNN and whether or not they wear a turban on their head or offer incense in front of an altar. But we say, no God, they're made in your image and you died for them and you love them. And if they come to you, I know your arms are open. God, let my heart be open to them as well. God, let your priority become my priority regardless of what they've done, regardless of what they look like. We see here that God loves the lost, that it is His priority, and that He is willing to do whatever it takes. The Bible tells us clearly that salvation comes to us freely. We do not have to earn or pay for our salvation. But it did cost God. It cost Him His Son. It cost Jesus His life. And I wonder this morning what we are willing to sacrifice What cost we're willing to pay in order for others to see Jesus in us. What are we willing to do? What Jesus is saying here when he talks about the cost of following him at the end of chapter 14. And then he tells these stories. He's saying this is what it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you a change in perspective. It's going to cost you a change in disposition. It may cost you a few, a few notches in the eyes of other people who will not celebrate that. I've had people look at me, as I said earlier, and lambast Sarah and I for going to a country that at one time America fought against. And I say, it's not about that. It's I surrendered to him. I surrendered to Jesus and said, Jesus, if it's what you want, if it's your priority, then I'm willing to make it my priority. And I believe this morning, God is calling us to a deeper level of commitment and saying, is it really a priority with us individually? What cost are we willing to pay to see people come into relationship with Jesus, have their sins forgiven, and have a hope of eternity in the future? I want you to bow your heads with me this morning. Father, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you that through your word we see that you do love us. Maybe one of the most commonly quoted scriptures is that you so loved the world that you gave your son. God, in this morning, individually, personally, we are thankful that you gave your son. You've given us peace in our heart. You've given us peace with you. You've written our names down in the Lamb's book of life, and we are secure. We know that we have hope of eternity after this life. God, we thank you for that. But this morning, I pray that each one of us, that we would not just see ourselves, but that You would again break our heart for the lost. God, I pray, Lord, that we would see that the lost are indeed Your priority, and it is for the lost that You came into the world. I pray, Lord, this morning that we would realize that You left heaven to come to this earth, not so that we could have an easy life, but so that we could be saved and that you desire for your people, your church, to perpetuate that message throughout the world, to let people know that you love them. God, I pray, Lord, that you would help us always to love you and to love the lost. I pray, God, that it would become a priority with us, such a high priority that we would say, God, whatever it costs, my time my energy, my resources, my life. God, I am willing to spend the one life that you give me for the sake of the highest priority that you have, and that is the redemption of lost mankind and bringing them back into relationship with you. God, I pray that you would speak to us this morning. Challenge us. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen, amen. Pastor, I'll turn the service back to you.